both knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 476. Jason Lingren is with me and LC King rejoins us. Last episode we did was 374. If anyone wants to revert back to check that out, um, we're going to get into a lot of symbolism here. And in the same way, I've been pointing out how the Trinity has played through law. It's it's just everywhere. Uh, we're going to touch on a bit of that, but there's a lot of symbolism that we're going to touch on here. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Oh, and a very fine late afternoon it is here. All right. So uh, welcome, Lucas. Thanks, Crow. Thanks for having me back on. Good to be here. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure. All right. Well, we're going to jump right in. First off, do you want to give out any kind of contact information? Yeah, I can. Um, I'll just probably give my email out. Do you want me to give that out now or later on? Well, I'll tell you what, if you give it out an hour one, it can become overwhelming. If you like, you don't have a website to give, we can wait till hour two for the email. Yeah, I might do hour two then. Yeah, it's a little more doable. We just collected questions for uh, Fortune St. Germain and it gets overwhelming. We only did membership too, so it's a lot. Well, where would you like to jump in here? I'm looking at your bullet points and the first thing I see is electrochemistry applied to the world. Yeah, so last time we spoke, that's what I was talking about, the electrochemistry and how it applies to the world and given it a closed system and all that sort of stuff. So my research is sort of moved away from that um, now and I've just been focusing more on symbolism and old mythologies and things like that and I just it's it's piqued my interest so the other thing that sort of where this stemmed from was when I was looking at um, electrochemistry I was actually looking at um, the hermetics and um, mercury and these sort of ideas and they just kept popping up so from there it sort of led me into understanding the Trinity because in a battery, the Trinity applies perfectly, especially when you look at something like a, um, a flow battery, which basically has two electrolytes and a salt bridge in the middle. So it's, it's almost like a magnet in a sense. It's got um, a north and a south and this sort of uh, bridge between it. And so when I was looking at the batteries and uh, hermetics and um, some of the mythologies, the mercury portion or that sort of um, preserving portion of the Trinity was that um, fundamental sort of communication between the polarities. And so once understanding that, then sort of I moved into seeing the mythologies in a different way. Well, it's interesting that you're going to bring up the kind of triune deity. There's so many ways that, you know, the expression of three, uh, most of us in the West were brought up with the idea of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think what's important is this is the real deal. There's a reason why, I mean, you just equated it with a battery. I've taken time to equate it with so many aspects of law, um, even trusts. Uh, there is no idea of a trust without this three-way idea we have going on here. So. Where do you want to pick up? Do you want me to follow through the bullet points as we see them? Yeah, I think that's probably the best. So the the next portion of this, um, looking at Mercury as that sort of preserver and following that, um, I actually saw the correspondence between Mercury and Jesus. And you actually do this through Gematria. And I use Gematria a fair bit to get a secondary information. Basic Gematria or full-blown? I mean, are you doing into the hundreds of numbers or are you using the one, the simple one through nine method? Um, I, I use the one that Marty Leeds uses, which is um, the English cipher and it's, it goes one to seven and then back down to one. So the other one that I use and I've been recently doing is the Greek gematria. And there's probably so much more to be found in that uh, Greek gematria and how that relates. They're sort of fundamentally different the way those two gematrias are set up. Um, they sort of express themselves differently. And so you can find out different sorts of information or they give you different qualities in a sense. So there is a correlation um, between the word Mercury and Jesus. And when you actually break it down, you can break a word down um, using the English gematria into three portions. So the whole word itself as a um, numerical outcome, and then the actual vowels or the consonants. So 
when you do that, you actually find that Mercury and Jesus, they actually break down exactly the same in the same, same numbers for all those three. So from there, I, I actually started looking at Jesus as um, at the, the numbers of Jesus, and I actually found it equates to the horse, actually, which is equus, the word equus. And so this opened up a huge sort of um, myth mythological tell that you could relate um, Mercury and the horse and these sort of ideas. And so there was a, a huge sort of opening to mythology from that. So, well, it's interesting. And as I'm looking at the notes, I'm noticing you're using the old school spelling of Equus, which would be E-Q-U-U-S as opposed to U-I-S. And the other thing I'm thinking about as you're saying this is the way, you know, Jesus is spelled depending where you are in the world in a couple of ways. But as we get into the horse, if we relate that back, the horse has always been a big deal. I remember way back in the days when YouTube was brand new and people latching onto the symbolism that had been threaded through so many things, particularly in Egypt and other places. But if we track it back in Western myth, we're going to come to the idea of Poseidon or Neptune, uh, I believe is the supposed mythological figure that ruled over the horse, which gives it a relationship instantly to the ocean, but on and on it goes. But is there a reason? you chose to use the W spelling of Equus? Yes, it's basically the scientific name. So the scientific name is Equus Kabbalus. And so automatically you sort of have the Kabbalah sort of encoded into the horse as well, or the cube. So that was sort of like another giveaway that this was, there was something here. And sort of before we go deeper into the horse, um, and to sort of explain it, I have to go somewhere a little bit weird, I guess. Um, and it's back to an old farming practice um, called the, it was basically the, it was a threshing floor. And what people would do is go and harvest the grain and they'd bring the grain up to this circular hardened pan floor up on a, usually up on a rise. And it was an elevated location where the wind could be used as an advantage to separate the wheat from the chaff. So in the center of this um, hard circle was a wooden post and you would tie um, your horse or your ox to that and it would, and it would have a man behind the horse or whatever and moving it around. Um, it would actually crush the, the stalks of the, of the grain and it would release all the seeds onto the floor. So you could actually pick up the grain after that and then go and um, you know, separate it with the, the wheat from the chaff and then mill it. So what was interesting about this um, is it became this threshing floor became a symbol for the heavenly movement. So as the, the horse or the ox is moving around in a circle, it became like this idea that the the horse was the actual seasons themselves or pulling or being the actual strength of the movement of the heavens in a sense. This circle was actually, you could break down zodiac as in zoo and dial. And so it basically means animal circle. And that's exactly what the threshing floor was. It is a, um, it's an animal circle. It's a, a a uh, circle that the animal moved around in. So, and it doubled as a um, sundial. So, well, there's, there's absolutely a weird occult thing going on with the threshing floor. Um, as a matter of fact, in blues, um, you see these weird references, like, and it goes all the way, uh, like, place like the Beatles took it from blues. This idea that I, I noticed the floor needs sweeping. But I think it relates back to what you're saying about the threshing floor, um, because there are older blues tunes where they actually talk about it. it. Makes you wonder if the implication is, you know, human beings are the wheat and the chaff being separated there, or something like that. Yeah, well, that's that's interesting you say that because these were sort of became um, meeting grounds, and there's actually a, a lot of references in the Bible to the threshing floor as well, where um, there's sort of these analogous uh, little tales where they're about um, marriage or hooking up and those sort of ideas as well as around it. But um, the threshing floor became very 
it was a central meeting place. And so you could, it has a relationship to law in that sense as well, where the, the group would gather together and deal out, you know, judgments. But the the main sort of point with the, the threshing floor is that you have that central pillar or gomen, nomen, what it's called, and nomen can be separated into two words, which is um, to know and one. And the nomen means, you know, the knowing one. So that's this central pillar in the circle became the sundial and it became the animal, whether it be an ox or a horse, became analogous to the shadow of the sundial. So it that they sort of linked up together. And that's why you have these um, very close spellings um, from horse to hora to, to the horai. Um, to Horace and to ours, they're all really, really close, and it's because of that that analogy to the horse moving around a circle like the shadow of a um, of a sundial's post. People forget how big a deal the horse was, but you've got to realize when we started to get combustion engines, how did they measure it? They called it horsepower, and by the way, they weren't honest about it. How many horses actually equaled the power of an engine? But what's interesting about what you're expressing is it's kind of like there's these known motions, motions and geometries in the world. And even though you're just in a barn going in circles to get your food to harvest, you know, based on the seasons, um, it's analogous to what's going on above your head in the sky clock. But isn't it interesting too? The idea of the devil actually plays into what you're talking about. Uh, because they're always, it's the idea of the floor needs sweeping. I think the last time I heard it in a song is I noticed the floor needs sweeping, but in some of the portrayals of the devil, particularly in Hollywood, he'll say things like, well, what, you just got to sweep your, your floor. You're just going to have to do it tomorrow. You want to wash your dishes. You're just going to have to do it tomorrow, trying to get you not to do the things that would typically a human being would be doing each day, almost like the idle hands or the devil's play things. But it it actually plays into the threshing floor because the devil in so many accounts is trying to say, well, you know, you got to do that every day. Why don't you just let it go and ignore it? You know, it's a weird allegory. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, but it, like this movement um, just doesn't apply to the threshing floor. It actually goes to the grinding of grapes and things like that. So it has this crossover where you would have a mule or something like that and it would be have a grindstone in the center. And so you have these uh, lots of ideas with the world axis and that's what you know will fundamentally draw us to the world axis um and that's like you have the stone in the center and they called the omphalos stone and and these sort of analogies as well or the millstone um so it it was basically any old mechanism that had this similar sort of rotational operation that was analogous to the to the heavenly movements and it was all that the, the pole itself was um, symbolic of the, uh, the Polaris and that central movement. So it's almost like, if I think about it broadly, it's almost an analogy. So in the same way you're in the threshing room floor, you've had to correspond your life to the seasons, to know when to plant, to know when to harvest and all this. And that's due to the sky clock above, which is also uh, in a circular or a cyclical motion. And then at the point where you've harvested, you have to employ this cyclical motion with that center pole, whatever you would call it. Um, and you have to produce a thing to be more specific, to produce the thing that's required for you to live the food. It has to be refined. You have to remove the chaff from the wheat. It's almost like the analogy is that the sky clock is producing or refining something too like us, like we're being refined and all the things that we have to do here, which is also allegorized by all the work we have to do. Yeah, you're 100% right. Because the other one, if we take this to the, the making of olive oil, the same sort of process happens where you, you have the grapes and you're moving around and then the, there's a refining of the oil. And they would use then the stones to divide the oil up into three sections and the top part of that oil would be for lamps 
and then the rest would be sort of cooking and then the the other one would be to it was sort of throw away in a sense but it was this analogy that the olive tree or the tree of life that you're an olive coming off it and then moving through this process getting refined and then you become like a little light yourself in a sense that you're a a lamp becoming the lamp oil well the language reflects it too because part of that oil is going to be referred to as virgin so if you're looking at the idea of refining something isn't it interesting that the word virgin gets mixed into it because typically though we get what it means mostly we get that it means a human being that hasn't had carnal knowledge and that goes into the idea of the vestal virgins i've i've thought about this a lot because in a place like rome you've got to ask and other before Rome, even the Vestal Virgin idea, why would they just do a thing, right? Why would they just make up a thing that has no meaning in the world? Um, and yet we find it. And so in the production of olive oil, and the, what's interesting too, I forget which Greek god, uh, is it going to be Athena? What's Whichever one was produced out of uh, Zeus's head or his thigh, actually gives human beings the olive tree. And there's a whole allegory there that relates to exactly what you're saying. And I don't think we think about it because, you know, when you think about, oh, we're going in a circle, we're making, we're finding olive oil. No one stops to think and blow it out to the entire universe or, you know, the sky clock and everything. Yeah. So the, the actual stones that they use to sort of crush the olives to get the oil out were virgin stones which was really interesting as well. They're called virgin stones. So going back to the horse for a second, the the horse in Greek is called a logo. And this word has a secondary meaning of um, irrational and silent, while logos has association to rationality and word. So you have this sort of really interesting play between the irrational and the rational. And especially when they in Greek mythology, they give you this um, the ideas that Pegasus, the winged horse, the immortal horse, um, is given the ability to speak. So it's like the irrational silent and the the speaking go together, which is really interesting in in mathematical terms. Um, and this is how deep some of this stuff goes in mathematical terms for the with those irrational and rational numbers, you're actually getting directed to certain transcendental numbers. So if you're looking at an irrational number, what you're actually looking at is something like pi or the square root of two, square root of three. And so they're sort of like never-ending ratios in a sense, never-ending numbers. And so they point to this eternality, whereas your rational numbers, they are sort of... uh, then they're not like that. They have a whole number that's associated with them. So all of these numbers are born of um, basically the Vesica Pisces. And so we're going back to this, um, in, in a sense, we can go back to the virgin birth via this, um, this idea of the Vesica Pisces, right? Which becomes a complete feminine idea. Every time I see a Vesica Pisces, even though I was brought up in a language that is pretty retarded. Um, and I mean, literally like being retarded down, like an engine being retarded. Uh, we've lost our gender, but in other ways of speaking, when you, when they speak things like a table would be feminine in certain languages, but the Vesica Pisces always has a feminine connotation to me, by the way, when you were getting into Pegasus, if I'm not mistaken, the original telling of the origin of Pegasus is when Perseus cuts the head off Medusa, the Gorgon, and that's a whole thing. Actually, two things are produced in the original telling of that. But where are you going with the Vesica Pisces? So, yeah, the, the Vesica is is sort of, I'm just sort of showing that it's embedded in into the horse uh, as well. And it will actually express itself in, in many different areas of mythology as we move on. Um, and it's from that Vesica Pisces, and you're right, it is basically, it's known as the mother of all shapes or the geometric yoni. Um, and it's from that that um, all these mathematical proofs can be made. And actually, the Vesica is um, an embodiment of the Trinity. So you have one circle, which can be 
you could say is uh, feminine, one circle that is masculine, and that it's that joining together that opens up and creates all these mathematics and um, transcendental ideas come flowing out of it, as well as um, the ideas of fire that builds and moves life. So I've seen the Trinity actually expressed. And whenever you can do a thing with geometry, I think you've discovered something important. So when I've, I've used it before, until you get to the Trinity, you can't build anything. You have a dot, you have a line, you have two lines, but that magical third line, now you're making stuff. The same thing is with the Vesca Pisces. You put a dot, then you draw a circle, then using the dot to base the second circle, now you've created the Vesca Pisces. And so the Trinity is absolutely, truly, actually, really demonstrable in its creation. Oh, 100%. And, and it's from that, that one movement. Uh, the rest of the seed of life and the flower of life can be made, basically. And these interwoven circles um, basically are a geometrical net, and they were called the robe or the veil of harmonia. And it's really governed by this, uh, the square root of three. And it can also be viewed as a fishing net. And so you have all this, these ideas of that are weaved throughout mythologies about fishing also the, the vessel of the fish. So you have these uh, sea ideas that are interwoven into it. And, and seem to have a feminine aspect. You know, look at all the words from the Bible and look at one like Mary. You have the M-A-R idea, and that is the mare or Mare idea. If you go to Japan, all the ships will be like Ishikawa Maru. Instead of saying the USS, whatever, you know, they have Maru on the end, that M-A-R, even in a place as far away as you can be from English and Japanese language, that M-A-R is still sea ideas. You can go all the way to the moon, the mare of tranquility, the sea, mare. Didn't Dylan Mm -hmm. have something significant to say about that? Oh, I'm, I'm sure that he covered so many things, but I, I was going to finish by pointing out that a, uh, a female horse is referred to as a mare. So there's your water crossover right there. And by the way, if you really want to get interesting, M would be the 13th letter of the alphabet and dead center, but it's all feminine ideas wrapped up in these things. So I kind of, at first I was wondering, how did you get to the horse from where you were going? But now I'm starting to see it perfectly. It makes perfect sense. And these, these would be magnetic ideas, right? Because that's the feminine, which again, we have the M-A-G, like Mary Magdalene. I mean, it goes on and on. Yeah, so it's from, from that feminine, the, the logos. Um, that's what they, the, it's this logos is this idea of, how do you say it? It's, it's reason, rationale. Uh, it's also the power behind the universe in a sense. It's it, it, what governs things. And so that's this, this idea that springs force naturally from the vesica. And it's that sort of um, the old mother or the, the mother idea that comes out of that. So That's the book of John. The, the one gospel that is not synoptic opens with the very words that echo what you just said. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God or the word was God, depending on the version you read. It's exactly what you're talking about right here. Mm-hmm. And it's from that. The, the seed of life or that vesica, that movement that creates the seed of life that we actually start to get naturally creates the cube. And it's from that cube idea you get sort of uh, uh, the, the real seven, which comes into play a lot in uh, any sort of religion or mythology. Counting the center point, is that how you're getting to seven? The cube has six sides and then you count the center point? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. Okay, and that center point is, in a sense, the immovable point. It's the in relation to our world. It's the Omphalos stone or the navel point. It's the world navel, and it becomes like this immovable rock. See, the nature of the the world axis is that it's immovable, and it's just like the the moving um, the the threshing floor with the the. The horse moving around it, the the post in the center was actually the the guide of the horse. It was the real power behind it because it was actually directing where the the horse needed to go. And it's the same thing within our world. Uh, this unseen, immovable, eternal world axis 
is the real power behind everything, but it just it, because it holds firm to where it's supposed to be in a sense. And what's really what's really sort of taken us away from this idea in a sense is the two cosmologies that we were given. One is basically a solar centric model. And, you know, with the sun in the center, the earth spinning and moving around. And the other one is um, the apolar-centric. That's what I call it anyway. And that's where the, the sun and the moon enclose system and they move around this central axis. Being the earth? Well, the central axis is like that polaris, this I this you sort of don't see it's the magnetic center of our world and they move around that. Oh, okay. So to referring to the pole before we get too far. So Jason, what were you going to bring up that Dylan had brought up in in the idea? Well, that's what I couldn't remember, but I could have sworn Dylan made a very strong point about the language connection, how that even in the far East, there was that connection with Maru and the sea. I remember him saying it, and I also remember that we had pointed out in one of the episodes that in the same way the Japanese uh, priests wear a black cube on their forehead, it was found out back in the 40s or the 50s when uh, an ambassador from Japan went to Israel that they realized there was a connection with their language. And of course, over there, you will have priests, well, whatever the right word is, with a black cube on their forehead, which is interesting because they wear on their arm, this black band that goes down around their middle finger, which is also the Saturn finger. And what's interesting is we're sitting here talking about the cube, which when I think about the cube, and Lucas, I don't know if you agree with me, that's here for me. Any representation of six or the geometry of a cube, that's here. It's got the angles of sorrow. It's going to be hard here. We're in a tough boot camp. But if you turn that cube black, now I'm thinking about Saturn. So I don't I don't know if you agree, but that's that's where my mind goes. Yeah. So when you're talking about Saturn and those sort of things, although I haven't spent heaps of time with it, um, the the symbology sort of is nearly all the same. Actually, Saturn is, you know, the when you're talking about the cube and the black and all those sort of things, there's, there's heaps of representations of it. Even Krishna is is black or originally with with nappy hair or woolly hair. They said black with woolly hair and some of the really old versions. But did you, what was the, the gematria value when you broke out Jesus and realized a relationship with Mercury? Do you know what the value was? Does it come down to a single number? Um, yeah, Jesus and um, Mercury is 27. 27. And then it'll be, six, it'll be 16 and 11. 27's um, really, really interesting because it is to do with the flower of life. Well, I'm with you all day because the way I do it, I would add that to nine and that tells me things. Um, nine is the highest number in the way that I think about things. It's also considered a pl- completion in the way that I use it. But I will also say that I have read recently, I love reading some of the old Christian mystics. They're so interesting. But what I noticed was when they were assigning meanings to numbers, they called six the Christ number, which I, I mean, it's neither here nor there, but it's interesting to me that you're getting to 27 because I would think about that as a nine and it fits the bill. Yeah, 27. And it, and it relates to um, uh, the flower of life and the uh, a cube, which is basically a Rubik's cube. So it has that sort of same gematria or the circles in it. So yeah, it's really interesting. And out of that sort of interlacing of circles you get so many different numbers and they all apply to these sort of it's like a canon of numbers that they use for either building measurement you know what have you it's in fact what i think it is is basically and they all understood this old system and they used it for building i don't think what i'm talking about or what i'm pointing to is um it was like their education system back in the day. That's what, as far as I can understand, like, yeah, it's just been so hidden to us, to our world. It's like a cult, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know if you agree with me, but one of the ways that I, I try when I get stuck or something's way too complex and that's why I use, well, everybody knows I'm not good at math. I don't, I don't think about numbers. I can't think about numbers in the way most people do math, where it's a value, where it's a sum or an output. They're symbolic to me and they're 
patterns, maybe is a good way to say it, but they're symbolic. And I get the meanings of one through nine that work for me. But if I take any number and I break it and I add it all up and then break it all the way down to one number, no matter how different those numbers appear to be on the face of it, if they both end up being, say, four, then I know there's absolutely a relationship. And when you do it that way, you begin to realize truly how interconnected the world is. And as a matter of fact, when we were talking about the Vesica Pisces and the flower of life, and if you don't know what the flower of life is, anybody just quickly go over to Google Images, search three things, search the seed of life and look at the geometry. And if you want to learn, draw that, then do the flower of life, which is based off the seed of life, then do the tree of life. And that's what starts to lead you into Kabbalah. But the point is, is that that's all Vesica Pisces and circles. Those are all feminine ideas. And, you know, I wear, I wear the flower of life around my neck every day in Shungai. These are the building blocks of basically everything material, aren't they? Yep. Yeah, hundred percent. It's it's this idea of the um, the the harmonia, the net of harmonia, the thing that actually pulls everything together. That that is the under underlying basis of reality in a sense. And when you look at it, this is another thing. It's like I always say: you can hear the bell ring, or you can hear that the bell's cracked. In other words, you know there's no truth there. When you look at a geometry like the seed or the flower of life. Pay attention to how you feel inside because that's the big tell. It just feels right. You know, I don't know any other way to describe it, but anyhow, where were you going? So there's, you know, speaking of this sort of, let's look at the the polarity that's part of this, this whole science, if you like. And it really, what really drove it home for me was this idea of air and water uh, or wind and water. And by a quick manipulation of those two words where you just flip the W's, you actually get this mind and matter. So from this, I started to basically do my, uh, a mind map on, on my iPad. I was working away and I had on one side, I had um, this correlation between my, mind and wind and air. And then on the other side, I had this idea of water and matter. And so you you see automatically see this uh, polarity uh, present itself, and then you can start to apply the where all these mythological characters start to to go. And so the wind portion, anything to do with air, such as sky, wind, wind instruments such as the, the conch, the horn, the flute, uh, feathers, wings, flight, uh, breath spirit, ether, and lightness is all to do with that masculine um, sort of sky god, if you like, comes under that polarity, and it's directly linked to mind. So anytime you see sort of like these mythological characters with wings, such as Hermes or um, Mercury or even Pegasus with the wings, you automatically know it's connected to the mind. Which Zeus would be. Zeus was the sky father. Yeah. I think what you're saying is actually provable. By the way, when you turned water into matter, that's also alma mater, which is another word for mother. So you kept the feminine idea as you did the switch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So as soon as you get the into um, the matter material, then you have all sort of the mother, oceans, seas, river, land, earth, uh, all things like fertility cycles, sustenance, beauty, weight is another one, heaviness, like bearings, you know, to bear a, a child and all those sort of things, the physical body, material, and, and the weaving ideas. Lots and lots of weaving ideas are to do with the Mother Earth who, you know, weaves the, the three fates, weaving destiny and those sort of things. Um, so you have this, the two polarities of mother and father, and then the child, which is the, to bring the trinity into it is now this communication between mind and matter and it's like the creation it goes back to creation stories where the the spirit air hovered over the waters and so there's this idea of mind mingling with matter to create life and so there's the two sides of the same coin in a sense and the spirit of god moved across the face of the deep 
it's even in the original scripture, a version of what you're laying down. Yeah, I don't, I don't really think any of this is arguable. I think it's on the face of it. And by the way, the Christian mystics, I think, it's been a year or two since I read, but their idea is they take apart the numbers one through, I think, 20-something, 10 being one less octave of 20 is their idea. But what's interesting, it said exactly what you did. One would be the male, the masculine, or the perfectly straight line could also equate to God. Two would be the feminine. Now, the first one is positive in polarity. The two is negative in polarity, and it's also the feminine. When those two come together, you get the offspring or the three, which is also the Holy Trinity idea, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I, I don't I don't really I don't think anything you've laid down can can be pulled into doubt, to be honest with you. Yeah, and that that Trinity is um associated the the Trinity portion of it is associated with the world axis. And and it's also associated with us as well, because the world axis is that uh, still point within the the commotion, is the still point within the world of change, um, and our spine relates to it as well. So we we ourselves are this merging of the two polarities because we're governed by mind and matter. Am I making that clear? Yeah, I actually, as you were speaking, I did a quick look up on world access just to see what they'd say. But go ahead, finish your thought. Yeah, so and, and that's where you get a lot of these these ideas are stemming from this this idea that we're in a world of change, the world of this this world that is uh, moving constantly, the seasons, the hours, and all that, and then you have this still point in the center of it, and so um, this is where there's the joining of the of the two polarities in a sense the because one would be an like um one's a positive charge and one's a negative charge and when they come together they cancel each other out and it becomes a neutrality in a sense and that's what this world center is sort of uh speaking of it's the 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 hard foundation that everything else is actually if it wasn't there the whole world would fall apart in a sense and so the analogy then comes into us is that we are we are the part of this world as well. We have all this change going around our little worlds that we're in, and we have this central pillar within us that we have to move into and find that center, that uh, present moment to operate from. I'm actually looking looking through which you were just about to do the wind. You know, another thing about the idea of the wind and the horse, and I see that you recognize that that's also in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, the wind horse is often depicted on their colored flags, which the wind carries their prayers to heaven through. But that is bringing the masculine and feminine idea together, right? The sky would be would be the uh, the masculine. And the positive polarity and the horse would be closer to the water idea, the feminine negative polarity. It's interesting. Yeah. And you also have Odin, which is, uh, you have Yggdrasil, which is the Drasil of that is actually means horse and Yig, the start of it is Odin. So it's Odin sitting on his horse. And that is Yggdrasil is the world tree. So they're exactly the same sort of thing. And some some aspects they actually paint the the uh, the water the the horse that they're sitting on as the feminine or the queen, which is which is interesting. The mare, and it just sort of depends on you have to put it in context with what you're reading in a sense. But um, there is definitely the horse plays a role in both as a air sort of creature, wind horse, or the water horse as well. So it's related to both. And I think a lot of what they're doing is they understand the basic premise and then they're playing with the ideas and finding correlations. Another one that's like attached to mind and that sort of has this linguistic connection to it because mind in Greek is nous. And so then automatically you have this related to noose, rope, twisting, and these ideas. And you also have nous can be linked to ship, the foot, and those sort of ideas as well. So you can have these linkages through language that are actually, um, you can see where the symbols are actually playing off. 
um, certain sort of uh, Sanskrit or Hindu gods will have a rope. And you, when you see that symbol in their hand, you know that they're, they're sort of like a sky god or talking about mind. So this starts to bring everything together once you understand the basic polarity that they're using. You know, it's funny when you begin to, you know, when years ago when we were doing this, people used to say, well, this is in English, doing versions of what you're doing here. But they would say this is for English. But in those couple of decades, uh, people are recognizing, oh, this is universal. So many words across so many disparate languages, most people don't realize that if you can't speak or can't listen to and comprehend a language, if you look at it written, you'll slowly begin to put it together. And there's such a commonality between so many languages that are so far apart. The real dividing line comes when you get into the Asian languages that are symbols, which we don't really know how to resonate with. But I noticed you were putting in your notes a thing that it's the same as with numbers. If I could take any number and I could add them all up, then reduce them down to a single number and they're the same, then I know, in fact, there is, for lack of better terms, a cosmic relationship between those two numbers, no matter what they were or how disparate they seem. And I notice you're doing the same thing with language when you recognize a word like legal is basically a jumble of the word eagle, but you recognize instantly that there is a relationship. In other words, there is a, it's beyond just a relationship because we recognize that it's like a resonating relationship. If I said that right, back to the idea of logos, like each one of those letters has just been moved around a little bit. So there is in fact, actually a relationship. Yeah. And I think that's what they were doing. Like I've thought about it in this way where we've thought language is liquid. It is like the world of change. It's always constantly sort of changing. Like we say, we've got, you know, our dictionaries and things like that now. Uh, and I don't think that was the case in the past, you know, it was much more fluid, but when you look at the, the sort of opposite of that, you have mathematics which doesn't ever change because you have, um, you know, one plus one is always going to be two. It's always going to show those relationships. And so you have this almost like language that we use is, is liquid fluid changes. And then you have the static one, the universal language. And so there is a sort of, when, when you're doing gematria or those sort of joining the mathematics and the, the language together or the, the word language, um, written language together, you're actually doing some sort of alchemical binding, if you like. And I find that really interesting because, and you'll see this actually with something like um, the Zeus, Apollo, and Hermes. When you do the Greek gematria of them, there there is a correspondence between those names um, that's all based on the uh, square root of I think it's square root of two. And so there is a definite, someone has gone to the trouble of creating those names and showing the relationships within the gematria. So they're built names out of gematria to show um, certain sort of mathematical principles. Well, let you realize too, see, English is kind of like the, the, the poor kid on the language block, isn't it? If you go to so many other languages, there's openly a, uh, a numerical version with each character or letter or whatever is properly for that language. And that shows you the importance of gematria, which is why, you know, decades ago, so many people were saying, oh, gematria is focus, focus, because they spoke English. And the only time that they had ever heard that there was a corresponding number was when they thought about a handful of letters from Rome or something like this from school. But the truth is, is that English is just like Hebrew, just like it's just not openly taught or shown. And as you go through what you're pointing out here, you don't get there without recognizing that there is in fact a numerical value. And what's interesting about it is I used to think, well, which version are you using? And I would think that the outcome would be different, but you know, I've paid attention People using what I consider long-form gematria, which will take thousands, numbers of hundreds or thousands, and, and just keep going on, are really doing almost the exact same thing as like the Christian mystics who take one through nine, or the very simple numerology, which is what I use. It all recognizes the simple truth. 
And, you know, you were pointing out, you use one through seven and you go back around, but nonetheless, the correspondences are made just in a slightly different way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I only use one gematria for the English language, and there is just another one for the Greek. And they use, there's this real, the difference is that the Greek one will go uh, one to nine for the first, it's broken into 27, I think. Uh, We'll go one to nine, and then it will go um, 10 to 90, and then um, so it goes up into in in tens like that. So what actually happens is you you can for a word you can actually get into the hundreds. So the name for Jesus in uh, the Greek gematria is it comes to a value of triple eight. Oh wow! So yeah, it's it's really significant because once you get into what what that actually means, it, it relates to music in a really really profound way. And it breaks down to six, like the Christian mystics claim that six is the Jesus number, by the way, if you break it all the way down. Yeah. So the Hori, and this relates to the horse, the Horus, and hours, and horology, which is the science of measuring time and making instruments. Well, each one of those three Hori are actually um, related to a different geometric mean. Uh, this is a way of most people are familiar with um, the arithmetic mean, which is you add um, three numbers and then divide it by three, and you'll get to where that center point is, right? Which we call an average. Yeah, exactly. It's an average. So there's actually three types of means. And so there's the arithmetic, there's the geometric, and there's the harmonic. And they are related to these um, three, the Hori, basically, three seasons. So it's from that geometric mean applied to music that you actually get the the value of 0.888, and it's the string ratio of a whole tone. Whereas if you want to look at the, in music, the 0.666 is the string ratio of a perfect fifth. So there's this correlation to the means, the uh, Hori, the horse, uh, Jesus as Equus again, and then and then these uh, musical rea- relationships, which are again based on sort of the ratios that come out of the vesica. But they also they also reflect reality. When you're talking about a musical note, that is what it is. But I've got to jump in here. We're at the top of the hour, Lucas. So let me wrap up real quick. But I want to pick up right where we're leaving off because when we start getting into the cymatics and the notes, it's a big deal. So I'm going to bring uh, hour one of episode 473 to a close. Lucas, I know you want to give out your contact email in hour two. But for anyone listening, you know, I, I can imagine some people think, well, what does all this mean? And I think the first line in the book of John sums it up. It informs us how important vibration is. It informs us how important our language is. To be able to speak words is a big deal, and it has far more meaning than whatever the word we just said means. And the first line from the KJV version is this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, it goes on in the first verse to talk about this is how everything was made. Nothing was made without it. It's the light of man. It goes on and on and on. But that is the basis that we overlook, I think, in the importance of of how these correlations are. And as I wrap up, I just want to point out how many of us would ever think we're in a barn, we're on a threshing floor. How many, who would ever consider that what's going on in that little circle is a microcosm of what's going on up at the sky clock? Anyhow, there's hour one of episode 476. First hour is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to join us on the website and log in for the full member episode. With that, we're going to take a break. We'll be back shortly. Hope to see you over at the website. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
Belief is the enemy of knowing.